Well, I wanted to uh, begin uh, this morning, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and uh, we're going to take a look um, at a passage of Scripture, Luke 23, and it's going to take a look at two men um, in that passage of Scripture. You don't have to turn there yet, and I'm going to set the stage. A lot of you know that um, I was a history major in college. I love history. One of my favorite characters in history is Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I was fascinated by the fact that Abraham Lincoln died on Good Friday, 1865, and, um, you know, he was shot in the back of the head by John Wilkes Booth, and, and he died on Good Friday. And you would think this great emancipator who had uh, delivered the United States from the bondage and the misery of slavery would, would be honored. But when the uh, Easter services began and, and the pulpits were filled with the pastors, the only thing that they did in relation to the great emancipator is the majority of the pulpits in America decried the fact that he, he was shot and was present in a theater on Good Friday instead of in church. I think sometimes we miss the significance of life and, and we, we tend to just miss what God's showing us. And he did die on Good Friday and he was in a theater when he was shot. Yes, he wasn't in church. It was the first time he'd been alone with his wife in quite some time and he had leaned into her in the middle of the, of the play just as John Wilkes Booth was approaching the back of his head with a Derringer to shoot him. And he said, I long to walk with you. I, w- I want to go far away from here when this is all settled. And I, I want to walk with you in the footsteps of our Savior in the streets of Jerusalem. And the last words he said to his wife as John Wilkes Booth shot him. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, like Moses, never got a chance to see the promised land. Both were, were emancipators, delivered people from slavery. But fascinatingly enough, there's a story of two men in relation to this, this time in history and, and it's fitting, and I'll begin with the story of these two lives and then go into the story of the two men in Scripture. The story's told of two brothers, and um, one of them would carry a, a letter to his grave and set the record straight. But I'm going to tell you about that in a moment. There was a man whose name was Edwin Thomas, and he was a master of the stage. And during the latter half of the 1800s, this small man with a huge voice had few rivals. He would be, um, he, he would be considered... Uh, who's Angelina Jolie? Uh, Brad Pitt. He'd be the Brad Pitt of his time. Um, everyone knew him. He was, he was known throughout the entire world. And he was a small man with a huge voice who had few rivals. He debuted in Richard III uh, at the age of 15 on the stage, and he found unrivaled success in his abilities to act out the great dramas of Shakespeare. In New York City, for 100 consecutive nights, he performed Hamlet, And even in London, where the tough critics lived, he won the favor in their hearts with his acting skills. There wasn't an actor equal to him on the face of the earth at the time he lived. And this Edwin Thomas was not alone. He had two brothers, John and Junius. They too were actors, although they were not nearly as gifted as their older brother, Edwin. And one decision by one of the brothers would not only affect the other brothers, but it would affect the entire nation. You see, his brother... John, Edwin's brother John, on an April night in 1865, with a civil war concluded, seven days, the war had been over, he divided the nation. You see, John walked into Ford's theater and fired a bullet at the head of Abraham Lincoln. Edwin Booth and John Wilkes Booth, they were two brothers. That was the last, they were last names. That night would mark forever Edwin Booth, He would never be the same again. The shame from his brother's crime drove him into retirement. He might 
have never returned to the stage had it not been for a twist of fate at a New Jersey train station. Edwin was awaiting his coach when a well-dressed young man, pressed by the crowd, lost his footing and fell between the platform and the moving train. Without hesitation, Edwin locked his leg around the railing and grabbed the man and pulled him to safety. After the sighs of relief, the young man recognized the famous Edwin Booth. Um, We had uh, Kevin Sorbo in the last service. He's the one who played Hercules, and he was also in God is Not Dead. He was in the last service. People recognize him. In this case, Edwin Booth was recognized by everyone. So as Edwin Booth pulls this man from from near death, uh, everyone recognizes Edwin Booth. And uh, they did not recognize the young man whom he had rescued. That knowledge would come to him a few weeks later in a letter, a letter that he would carry in his pocket to his grave. Edwin Booth would carry this letter in his pocket till the day he died. It resurrected his acting career and his life. A letter from a General Adams Boudot. He was a chief secretary to General Ulysses S. Grant. And it was a letter thanking Edwin Booth for saving the life of the child of an American hero, Abraham Lincoln. How ironic that while one brother killed the president, the other brother saved the president's son, and the boy was yanked to safety was none other than Robert Todd Lincoln. And that note that he carried in his breast pocket led to the resurrection of his acting career and his life in general. And I share that with you because today we're going to take a look at two lives. Uh, very similar. Their resume is almost equal. And yet it's so profound the difference in their lives. The two lives we're going to take a look at are found in Luke chapter 23. I know that this is a Resurrection Sunday message, and some of you will be wondering, why am I taking a look at the crucifixion? We will conclude with the resurrection, but you can't appreciate the resurrection without understanding the cost of the crucifixion. So in Luke 23, I want to pick up at verse 26, and it's dealing with the two thieves that were on either side of Christ. Now, as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that, G- that he might bear it after Jesus. So Simon the Cyrenian is the only one we hear of whose name is depicted in this Via Dolorosa, the way of pain. And, and just to give you a context, at this point where Jesus is carrying his cross and begins to stumble, that's where the Roman centurions call upon this Simon the Cyrenian, and, and uh, a Cyrenian, he's a black man, and they call upon him to carry the cross of Christ. And fascinating, at this point, Jesus is, is bleeding out. Uh, the Romans had, had had their way with him in the sense that they had taken what is called a cat of nine tails. It has... Um, nine strips of flat leather that they would soak in water, and at the end of each of the straps of leather would be tied a metal shard or a glass shard so that the the leather would stick to the back on the whipping and the the metal or the glass would then shred the back and pull out chunks of flesh as the the beatings and the whippings would would occur on the back of Christ. They had already mocked him, tied his hands around his, his, his back, and they had put a cloth bag over his head, and they had punched him on a number of occasions and say, prophesy who hit you and making sport of him. They'd put a, a robe on him and they pretended that he was king. And, and even in, in the Antonio Fortress where I visited on a number of occasions, when you throw water on the stone right there in the Antonio Fortress under uh, many tells or levels of civilization within the streets of Jerusalem, there the water creates this relief where you can see etched in the stone the king's game, which is a location where they more than likely uh, beat Jesus and had sport with him during this king's game, which was played by Roman soldiers. 
They also fashioned a crown of thorns, and I've seen the, the plant from which they fashioned the crown. It has uh, thorns three to five inches long, and they placed that on the skull of Christ, pushed it in, and, um, and he was bloodied. It, it's, it's said in, in Isaiah and a number of other places that his visage, his face was so marred that, that unlike any other man, they, they, they say that they pulled chunks of his beard out of his face. And here as he's, he's bloodied and he's bleeding out, now they give him this cross to bear. And as he's walking up with this beam that would be attached to the secondary beam, he stumbles and they call upon Simon the Cyrenian to carry it the remainder of the way. But it also goes on to say a great multitude of people followed him. In verse 27, and women who also mourned and lamented him. So there's great wailing taking place. Women are following, they're crying out. Uh, they're, they're every, every beating he's receiving, their hearts are broken and crushed. But Jesus turning to them, even though he's bleeding out, he turns to the women and he, and he says something that every Jew would understand. He comes from a, a prophetic point of view, declaring the judgment of God. And he says to the women, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And what he's declaring is, there is judgment coming. I will take upon me the sins of the world, but for those who do not embrace the salvation of God through the sinless lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world, for those that would deny this salvation, this great salvation, it'd be better for them if they had not been born. And as these words echo, two men are witnessing the, the reciting of these words. Because it says in verse 32, there were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. These men are following the Via Dolorosa. They witnessed the saying to the women. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, Calvary is an English transliteration of the word Golgotha, place of the skull. It could be um, a number of, we know of two locations that it could be in, in Jerusalem. We've been to Gordon's Calvary and then there's a traditional site as well. And there... At Calvary, it says four words. You see, in verse 33, it says, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, the next four words, each word you could do a sermon on. The four words are simply this. There, they crucified him. There. There on that mountain would be a, a vision that would be seared into the minds of all who are present today and throughout all of history, three crosses. When you think of Calvary, you see three crosses. Oh, we tried to depict Christ's cross higher than the other two, but that wasn't the case. We, we tried to put them high in the sky, but that wasn't the case because as we read Roman history, the crosses were so low that when the thieves would be left on the cross, jackals would come and eat their lower extremities. Yes. And here these men are all next to each other, three of them. Christ in the middle, one on either side, both thieves. There, on that hill, that scene forever seared into the minds of all mankind. You see the three crosses in your mind? There, they, us, we crucified. Crucifixion, the declaration of death that had been prophesied 700 years before it had ever been invented, that he would die of crucifixion. There, they crucified him, not the thieves, him, the Lamb of God. There, they crucified him. Those four words 
resonating, echoing in the hearts and minds of all who are present today, I pray. And it says, and the criminals, yeah. You see, Luke declares them to be criminals. Matthew and Mark called them thieves. Luke calls them malcontents, evildoers. They, they, had, they had turned this into, into an art. They had long left the, the respect and care of their parents, and they had long left the idea of any morality and doing what was good. They were in life for themselves, and they had abandoned anything that was good, and they looked out for themselves, no matter what pain they would cause anyone else, stealing from others that which didn't belong to them, causing heartache and pain. They were criminals, they were thieves, they were evildoers. All accounts declare them to be such, so evil that they were sentenced to death. Most horrific death ever invented on the face of the earth. And as a matter of fact, these two men would have their femurs broken so that they would suffocate upon the cross. The Romans would do this to expedite the death. And here, these two criminals, Luke says, one of them on the right and the other on the left. But the part next in the passage is what we reflect on this morning. It says, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. I'm fascinated by that because as you take a look at the tense of the text in the Greek, it's the second aorist tense. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do, it's active, it's imperative, it's continual. What it means is he kept saying it. He didn't say it once, he kept saying it. Every time they spit on him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Every time they ripped his clothing off him and they gambled for his clothing, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When it goes on to say that they divided his garments and they cast lots, it goes on to say that the people looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. These men of decorum, these men of honor, these men who are supposed to set the moral standard of society have joined into the mocking and the sneering. They've made sport of it. It's, 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 it's in vogue to make fun of this man. He saved others himself. He cannot save. They mocked him. And every time that they did it, in the active, imperative, continual, second aorist tense, Jesus would repeat over and over and over again, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Every beating he took it with a response, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It wasn't just the moral religious leaders who made sport of him, abandoning their high station, this decorum that they were to carry throughout the community. It was in vogue. Everybody's doing it. And as the religious leaders set the tone and they began to mock him and ridicule him, the soldiers joined in. They mocked also. They came and they offered him sour wine. And as they offered him the sour wine on a hyssop and a piece of sponge, which others would say this is how the Romans cleansed themselves after they relieved themselves, you can see the mockery of the extension of what they would say would be relief to him. The sponge were, sponges were soiled. The action was evil. The soldiers mocked him. They offered him sour wine saying, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. Everybody thought this was funny. 
At the expense of the Savior of the world, he kept repeating in the active, imperative, continual second aortive text, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. An inscription was also written over him in the letters of Greek and in Latin and in Hebrew so that all could participate in the mockery. This is the king of the Jews. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I stop for a moment because as we take a look at this text in Luke, one of the things that we miss is a depiction in the other passages of Scripture. In the other passages of Scripture, it says in Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark 15, of the two thieves, it says, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. They joined in, both thieves, making sport of the Lord. They mocked him. Matthew notes this, and so does Mark. Matthew says in Matthew 27, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. It was in vogue. Isn't it interesting today how we make sport of anyone who believes in God? In all of our brilliance and all of our mastery, we find ourselves to be self-made men and women None of us keep our heart beating while we sleep at night nor our lungs moving, but we have the arrogance to think that we are so. We reject the two great laws of the universe that there is a God and we are not him. We do not want to be accountable to that God. We don't want to honor that God. We figure out other types of systems to embrace so that we can be the ruler of our own destiny. We all have a conscience. Some of us is seared. Some of us have consciences that are seared. We become cold and heartless. But others, your heart is beginning to beat again. Life is starting to resurrect in your heart. The Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, God says, I have helped you. Behold, now, is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The author of Hebrews would write in verse 27 of chapter 9, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Oh, we reject an idea of a judgment. It's a lot more comforting when we walk by a, a graveyard. We don't think we'll be accountable to a creator. But we will be. Isaiah writes in chapter 64, verse 6, but we are all like, un, like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We scan the room this morning and we look deep into the heart of all who are present that which you want no one to know about, that which you've done in secret. And there in the midst of that portion of your being, if approached in honesty, we would all agree we're but filthy rags. We're ashamed. Please don't reveal that. 
The room is filled with those who have fallen short. I don't say that to mock you. I say that because I'm like you. The Bible says God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. He, he puts the ones that are the most worthless probably behind the pulpit, according to that passage. The only good thing in Rob McCoy is Jesus Christ. I know what I'm capable of. I know what I've done. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A fascinating statement because as you see seared into your mind, into your memory, those three crosses, Jesus is saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The word the is exclusive. You say, well, my goodness, pastor, that's very narrow. Well, truth is narrow. Two plus two is four. It doesn't matter if millions of people disagree with you. There are laws that govern the universe. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. You see, pictured in that image, seared into your mind of the three crosses is all of humanity. Luke would write in Acts chapter 4, there is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but that of Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which we must, an imperative, must be saved. In Timothy, it's written, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And here we find in John chapter 20, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then finally, for those of you who would question a need for a Savior, I would add Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word sin is an archer's term. If you're shooting for the bullseye and where the arrow lands and the bullseye is, it's called the sin distance. How far you've fallen from perfection. And I would venture to guess with certainty there's no one in the room here who thinks themselves perfect. And if you do, you have a greater problem than anything I can help you with. I don't think the door is big enough to get your head through. And this is the declaration. Even Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake and some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt or term... And so with this idea of contempt, damnation, damnation? Yes, hell. I don't believe in hell. Well, Jesus did so much so that he spoke of it more than anyone else in the Bible. He so, not wanted, you, he so wanted you not to go there that he put a big barrier in front of the gates of hell, and that is the cross. He died so you wouldn't have to go there. In Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, there again, you have the three crosses. Seared into our memory. One, two, three. Those three crosses divide the room. Everybody falls in one of the categories. Paul wrote in Romans 10.10, 10, please hear this. 
for with the heart, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This passage, this verse is vital to the conclusion of our message today. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Righteousness means being made right with God. Reconciling, religion. Religion means to reconnect, relink with, with God. It's a Latin word, relongari, to relink. Now, you can try to get to God by all your good works, but there are none righteous, no, not one. There's no one perfect, only God, and your attempts are futile. And, and the way it works is here's where your arrow land and here's where the bullseye is and you can keep trying to get to the bullseye but you'll never get there. Everyone has made a New Year's resolution. Everyone has broken it. Everyone sped to get here probably. Everybody had some evil thought in their heart. Some of you right now are angry with me because I'm going too long. I don't know what it is but everybody's got an issue. Yes? And the beauty of Christianity which separates it from every other religion in the world and makes it true is that Jesus moved the bullseye to where you and I are. But he moved it when our heart began to believe and our mouth confessed unto salvation. You see, the three crosses, the thief on the right and the thief on the left. The fascinating thing to me is the thief on the right, we only know him as the other. We don't know his name. We do know that he's a malcontent, he's an evildoer, he's a thief, he's a criminal. We know him to be one who mocked Jesus and ridiculed and joined in on that which was in vogue to have sport of the Savior who had been brutalized and beaten and bloodied. We know him to have participated and had his way. But different than the others who participated, his arms are attached to the cross on which he is about to die. His legs are fastened to the cross upon which his femurs would be broken and in moments he'd be dead. He's on death row. Worse than death row, he is sitting in the electric, electric chair. The switch will be turned and he will be dead, as will the man on the left of Christ. And here, this man, sneering and mocking Jesus along with the other, he is hearing in his mind, he's hearing in his heart continually over and over and over again the cry of the Lord in the active, imperative, continual second aorist tense Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The other man has closed his ears. He's bored. He's petty. He seeks not to have anything forgiven. He is going to die as in control of his own destiny. All the things he's done and the people that he's hurt and the life that he has lived, he, he's accountable to no one. I am my own God and I will take whatever comes to me and I'm willing to face judgment for there is no God. I am the God of my life. In the callousness of his heart, he silences his mouth, but over here to the right of Christ is a man whose heart begins to beat. He sees over and over again this man who's been bloodied, this man who's been spat upon, this man who has been mocked, this man who has been ridiculed, this man who's been shamed, responding, as God says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. He's responding in kindness. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Father, forgive them, for they know, they know not what they do. 
not once, not twice, multiple times. He's witnessing this. He's witnessing during the beatings. He's witnessing during the mockings. He's witnessing it during the gambling. As, as the nails go into his wrists, as the nails go into his feet, he just cries out. And what happens at that moment in Luke's account, found in no other account of the Gospels, it says that one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. So the one on his left begins to continue in the mocking. To hell with me. But the other, whose heart begins to beat with life, rebuked him. He leaned past Jesus and he looked over to the other criminal and he says, do you not even fear God? Seeing that you are under the same condemnation as me, we're dying. Our heart will cease to pump. Our veins will cease to push the blood where it needs to go and our brain will cease to function. Our life is, is being removed from us as we speak. Do you not see that you're under condemnation? Do you see that we are getting what we deserve? We're criminals. We're malcontents. Do you see that we're here because of what we've done? Do you understand the penalty for what we have done? And we indeed justly, we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man, this man, have you heard him? Every time they beat him, all he says is father forgive them for they know not what they do. Have you not heard? All that comes from him is his kindness. Look at what they've done to him. Can your heart not beat? Are you not moved? Are you dead? Do you realize? But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus. And he says a word that Jesus hasn't heard in quite some time. In the cacophony of mocking, and the cacophony of evil, as, as vicious words and spittle has been placed upon his face, as, as beatings and anger and every curse word imaginable in the, in the languages of three different peoples have been levied upon him. In the midst of all that, one word is echoed from the lips of that thief. Curios. Lord. Lord. A declaration that I submit to you. You are my master, and I am here to serve you. Curios. Lord. Like the Syrophoenician woman who had the demon-possessed daughter, she said three words, Lord, help me. This man whose arms were were fastened to the cross, whose feet were fastened to the cross. He said, Kyrios, remember me when you come into your kingdom. His arms couldn't move. His feet couldn't move. He couldn't say to God, I'll give you the rest of my life. What did he have, 20 minutes? 10 Lord, I, 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 will, I will go to church. He had never been baptized. He had not gone to his first communion. He didn't even speak in tongues. He could give the Lord nothing but his heart. 
And all of us in the room, our lives are fastened to the sin that easily besets us. You know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. We live in the shame and the mockery of those who enslave us. We struggle in life thinking there's no hope, no way out. We long for intimacy. We long for some sort of connection. We find ourselves in a mess. We've tried everything there is and have never found satisfaction, never solace for our soul, never comfort, never anything that abides. And in the misery of the world and the mocking, which is our own life and our attempt to try to do things right, here we are fastened to a cross. We cannot be removed. We're mocked by the world. We're mocked by ourselves. We're mocked by our memories. We can can sear our conscience and, and reject the voice of one who decries over and over again, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Next to us at an arm's length is our salvation. They were both an arm's length from the middle cross. They could have both reached. The man on the left could have reached with his right hand. The other with his left. But what separates us from that God? Our pride and our arrogance, more importantly, our heart. Jesus turned to this man. We know that Jesus couldn't speak Luke records three of the seven last words of Christ. They're only found in Luke. And in this portion, he turns to him and he says probably one of the longest sentences as his body is bleeding out. He says, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Mm. You can imagine the pain in the heart of the thief, but also the joy today, paradise for me. All I've ever done is say, Lord, remember me. But he understood the atoning sacrifice of the one who kept saying, forgive them, Father. Who is this man who has such a connection to the God of the universe that he would call him Papa? You see, On Jesus' left was the lost, and on his right was the saved. On his right was the one accepted, and on the one on his left was the one rejected. You see, one died in his sin. The other died from his sin because the one in the middle died for our sin. Human religion, what a waste. Self-effort. Oh, but Christianity and the power of it. It is substitutionary atonement. On the left of Jesus was self-effort. On the right of Jesus was a man who understood substitutionary atonement. And his heart begins to be moved by so great a sacrifice. God didn't leave us there. He would go on to say in the Psalms, as for a man, his days are like grass and a flower of the field, so he flourishes and the wind passes over and is gone and its place is remembered no more. 
Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in our hearts. As Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said, we all have a God-shaped void. It's, a, it's fascinating that the thousands of years has occurred on this earth and, and we somehow can sit in a room and feel as though we're the center of the universe and God owes us an explanation. That, that we, we figured it out. And the arrogance of man and the pride of man is we're on the left side of the cross and, and we're willing to take life on our own terms and deny so great a salvation when Jesus would declare there's no other name under, under heaven by which you must be saved. But there was one other passage. And this is the passage that moves me today. It's out of John. And in John, I'm sorry. Yes, in John 19. You see, the thief is on the cross. And he said, Curios, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then he hears the words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. The psalmist says that Christ's tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth because of thirst. He couldn't get those words out to the point where others would testify that he was crying out for Elijah. They couldn't hear him. His tongue so swollen, his body so abused. As he, he muttered the words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. The thief heard them, he was close enough. But the others declared he's crying out for Elijah. He saved others, save himself. They had offered him medication that he would reject but finally he decides to take the hyssop with the sponge, the sour wine depicted as vinegar, because he cries these last words of the seven he would speak. He says, I thirst. And he said, I thirst because he saw what was happening to his body and he wanted to loosen his tongue so that he could declare to this man on his right, the words that would shake hell itself. He said, I thirst. And they took the vinegar and they touched it to his lips. And as he allowed the moisture to go into his mouth and to encircle his tongue and loosen his teeth, it says in John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of vinegar, sour wine was sitting there. They filled it with a sponge with sour wine. They put hyssop on a hyssop and they put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus received the sour wine, the vinegar, he allowed it to moisten his lips. And he would utter the greatest word uttered by the greatest man who ever lived. And he would say it for the man on his right to hear with clarity. To tell us die. To tell us die. We translate it into three words. But to the Greeks and the Romans, they knew what it meant. To us, it is finished. A Roman would know it when they had served their time in prison. It would say debt paid in full to tell us die. 
when a slave would serve his master and his, his time of indentured servitude would be completed and the debt would be paid to Telestai. When the last mortgage payment was placed down to Telestai. I'm waiting for that. <laughs> the greatest word ever uttered by the greatest man that ever lived. And this word terrified hell. But oh, did it bless the thief on his right. I like what one author writes. You see, this English phrase of ours, this little sentence is not in the Greek at all, and I don't know much about Greek, but I did discover that, the, that in the Greek it is just one word, finished. He says, I get indignant when I hear people say, what we need to do is study comparative religion. Well, I say again with some heat and some feeling in my spirit, Christianity is not a comparative religion. It is a superlative religion. Because this one saying of Jesus Christ explodes every other religion on God's earth. They are all fakes and they are all useless. Some of you are shocked by that. Don't take it up with me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He proved it and he declared it is finished. Substitutionary atonement. You can try to work out your salvation. Good luck with that. You can be your own God. Good luck with that. But it is appointed once for a man to die. You have conviction in your heart. You know when you've done wrong. We know what love is. We know what right is. We know what wrong is. We stand before a holy God to give an accounting of our life. And here we are today, one on the left, one on the right. All humanity is leveled in the three crosses. You're either going to die in your sins or from your sins because the one in the middle died for your sins. And the only way that you move from the left to the right is to declare, Curios, Lord. You can't add to it when Jesus says it's finished. You'll never be able to earn it. You can't subtract from it. And I'll tell you what words are never uttered in hell. It is finished. There will be people in hell today and people in a hell a billion years from now. No message or messenger will come from another world to say it is finished. Your judgment is past. You've no more suffering for your sin. The wrath of God doesn't abide in you anymore. It will for all eternity. We're on this earth to be reconciled, relinked to God. His son died so that we could be saved. If we're going to escape that eternal judgment, if we're going to enter that eternal rest, it must happen now. As it says in the scriptures, today is the appointed day of salvation. But I think it's amazing that people withhold their petty little lives from so great a savior. We love our sin enough so that we would endure the anger and wrath of God on our own terms rather than repent and believe and be saved. Christ's love is so amazing and so divine. He bore our sins on his body. He took the curse and the wrath of God upon him. He took our sins and his heart was broken that ours might be healed. He was an outcast that we might be brought in. He suffered on the outside of the gate that we might be brought into heaven. And I'll tell you, there was no one who loved it more than the thief on his right who heard him cry with all clarity the words that would shake hell itself to Telestai. 
paid in full. It is finished. The glory from the grave. The glory from the grave. One man died in his sin. The other died from his sin because the one in the middle died for his sin. The glory from the grave. For that thief, the other. Want to talk about a resurrection Sunday? He had never done anything to earn salvation. So for all of you who have a thousand excuses why God couldn't love you, today the other declares nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Let your heart begin to beat. Curios, remember me. He's calling you. <laughs> Try to fit it any way you can, I guess. <laughs> the glory from the grave. You see, the beauty of paradise today is the tomb is empty. And that's what separates Christianity from every religion in the world. It was an atonement. He died in your place and in my place. We receive his righteousness unto salvation. And when your heart begins to beat, as we declared in Romans 10.10, as your heart begins to beat, it says that it's with your heart that you begin to believe and with your tongue you confess unto salvation. And so what I'm gonna do in this last moment is I'm gonna ask us in just a second, not now, but in just a second, I'm gonna ask us to close our eyes and bow our head in just a moment, not now. And the reason why is because you see the three crosses. The room is divided. Your heart is beginning to beat. You've witnessed through the course of your life over and over again the kindness of God and today it leads you to repentance. Every time we've screwed up, he's just saying, he's at the right hand of the Father ever living to make intercession. Father, forgive him. Give him some more time. But today is a day of salvation. Today's the appointed time. Your heart is beating and you like the thief on the right, you're, you're beginning to see in this Savior a God who has loved you since you were fashioned in your mother's womb. A God who's never left you nor forsaken you in all the struggles in a fallen world. He has not given up on you. And today you want to say, Kyrios, remember me. Save me. And the way it works is we saw in Romans 10, 10, that believing in your heart and then confessing with your tongue unto salvation and in a moment when our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm going to give you a private moment to respond in faith. I'm going to say, if you're ready to make him Lord of your life, curios, you want to be saved, you accept his salvation, his, his death upon the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, I'm going to say, at this moment, I want you to raise your hand. It's going to be an act of faith. And a lot of you are going, wait a minute, that's too easy. Yes, not for him, but for us. There's nothing we can do. We're tied to the cross. The only thing we can allow is our heart to beat. Everybody's an arm's length away from the Savior. Be the one on the right, not the one who's going to be left. Today, God calls you that this for you would be a resurrection Sunday. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me, please?
Everybody, please, this is a private moment between folks and God. I'm going to be the witness of that. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, you've seen depicted before you three crosses. One man died in his sins under damnation. Another one died from his sins because the one in the middle died for his sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That son who was crucified, buried and resurrected so that we may have and know we have eternal life. That life is in his son. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Your heart is beating. You're coming to life. And like that thief, curious Lord, remember me. Today, if you want to receive him as your Lord, I'm going to ask by an act of faith that you would raise your hand right now. Put it up. God bless you all. Praise the Lord. Keep them up. Anyone else? Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. God bless you. God bless all of you. God bless all of you here in the back, sides, middle. You may put your hands down. If for some reason my feeble eyes missed it, the God of the universe did not. He didn't and neither did all the angels in heaven. The scriptures say they rejoice. Today you've been made alive in Christ Jesus. Today your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Today you are on the right because God has saved you. He is your Lord. Your heart is beating. And today is a resurrection Sunday for you. Christ is alive. The tomb is empty and you are his child. And so Lord, thank you for those who gave their heart to you. Bless them, protect them, inspire them, fill them and use them for your glory. You who began a good work, are faithful to complete it. And we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's clap for those who gave their heart to the Lord. Would you all stand? If you gave your heart to the Lord, in the back, uh, over by the aquarium that you saw on the way in, I want to give you a Bible. It's free. It starts your walk with the Lord. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. Just like your heart was touched today by the study of his word, your life will grow by the study of his word. For those of you who are still questioning it, it doesn't mean today's the last day. God is, is patient and long-suffering, wanting that none would perish, but that all would be saved. But don't keep delaying. Because every time you turn away, you get a little bit harder. And one day we're all going to call him Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue confessed. We'll know when we step into eternity. Either we've received him or rejected him, but we're going to know that he was Lord. The scoreboard is his. He wins. But I want to thank all of you for coming out today and celebrating the greatest event in the history of mankind, the risen Savior. Amen? Amen. He has risen.